0: Hello and welcome to the Irish Orthological Society podcast. My name is Edel, and today on the podcast we have our IGS president, Dr. Emer Hearn. Welcome, Emer. Uh, Thank you, Edel. Emer is a consultant in trauma and orthogeriatrician down in Cork University Hospital, and she's also the National Clinical Advisor Group Lead for older persons since I think May last year. And as I mentioned, she's also the president of the IGS, so she had to do the podcast. Uh, just welcome along, Eimear. Thanks for agreeing to do the podcast today. I'm delighted. We normally kind of start with a general theme of why you do what you do. Um, Like, was there, I suppose, what brought you towards this specialty? Older people, was there a moment, a person, was it a love you've had for a long time? So if you just want to give us a sense of how you got to this specialty. Uh, well, I went to
1: uh, college or university in UCC and thereafter I did my intern year in Cork, in Cork University Hospital, and then afterwards went to Dublin to do my um, SHO years. So during that time, I didn't as an intern, I had exposure to geriatric medicine working with um, uh, Michael Hyland and Killian Toomey, who would be often be mentioned as inspirational um, people for many of the geriatricians around the country today. So I worked with them and it was one of the, my most enjoyable um jobs when I was an intern and I had such fond memories of it when I left and then during my SHO years I didn't have any exposure to geriatric medicine that now is um part of the curriculum now and then it was when deciding kind of about registrar jobs and was really just and I was wrecking my head trying to decide what I would do and um then really it just I don't know it just came then and this kind of um light bulb moment um and then I applied for a job in St James's uh working with um Professor Walsh and Professor Coatley and really I never looked back then after that
0: yeah and and I suppose Emer as I mentioned when we were doing your introduction you're also involved in the kind of non-clinical roles like say the IGS you're at the present the moment or do you see a value in being involved with say the IGS or what drew you towards that uh, throughout kind of
1: my career as a geriatrician, you know, um, when I was training and as a consultant, I suppose the IGS uh, played a really big part in my training and also in kind of my joy in the speciality as well. And when I was training in Liverpool, it was the same really with the BGS. So when I was training and the IGS, the meetings at the time used to be held in a um, hotel in Kalini. That really had. I have such fond memories of it, but there was an overriding kind of like there. There's always been this feeling that there had been a deb's or a grad's the night before, and that we were the meeting on the next day. But at that point in my career, it was a real opportunity. You know, this was before I sound, you know, um, any of virtual meetings. So it was really the opportunity to network and to meet with. Um, Colleagues with consultant colleagues um, and with, you know, your fellow trainees. And it was a really rich experience, you know, that every year. And it was something that everybody used to really look forward to. Mm -hmm. And then kind of then as I was in Liverpool, like returning home to it was always great, you know, meeting up with people. And then when you became a consultant, I think then you realize kind of like it takes on a different relevance and value to you then in terms of how you can, in some way, kind of influence, you know, um, geriatric medicine or gerontology, really, you know, how it's developing and where it's going. And I think that's the real, you know, value of the you know, the IGs. Now, is that it is to give that platform, you know, for our education, training, you know, for our leveling up, kind of what we do, and what we want to do next. Mm -hmm. and then it's the whole I mean it's grown so much and the whole multidisciplinary component now is such um you know it's such a fundamental part of it now that um so it's that so I think it depends on what stage you are in your career you know what relevance it is to you and how much you can kind of give or get out of it
0: Mm -hmm. um
1: but certainly it's probably given to me you know uh, more than and the society gets out of me but um, as long as it continues to do that, it will be a good society, I think.
0: Yeah. And then I suppose the the role within the HSE, again, is that something that you just wanted to make, I suppose, have a, a voice in things or take on more leadership in that way? I think I would have always had an interest,
1: you know, um, kind of, again, in my consultant career, not so much as um, in my training, you know, in, how to make the system work better for older people um, and what needs to happen and how you can influence it. And so even in my work when I started off in my first consulting job um, around hip fracture care, um, there was always this kind of um, wider view that you know, the system had to change, you know, in, in addition to the one-on-one care that you were giving. And, So that's what kind of led me then into the National Clinical Advisor role. So I would always have an interest in that. I always think it's important to have a clinical person leading on that, you know, that to give that perspective and to give that kind of added dimension kind of when strategy is being talked about, when policy is being talked about. Um, And so that's really what attracted me to the uh, National Clinical Advisor role. And I think it is just about being in, a position where you can influence kind of on behalf of the people that you serve you know and to give that um another kind of voice and a specialist voice and an expertise you know in order to influence That's mm-hmm. what I would have found is that during the role that it is something that is sought after you know very much so and um you know very much wanted you know we we Would say that it's needed but in actual fact kind of the people that i work with who aren't clinical would say that it's very much wanted you know and it certainly helps to influence and steer conversations and discussions you know that you wouldn't have thought it would have gone there
0: yeah and i suppose we might kind of go into a few things we'll touch on we'll just see how we move through different topics so i have seen you give um a presentation on the kind of urgent and emergent uh care plan for older adults and I suppose one of the things that I took from it was the whole it's not about whether older people are in the right place it's about doing the right care for the demands so rather than this whole thing of oh this isn't right and this isn't right like where do you see that's obviously a big vision but like where do you even for I suppose for people who maybe haven't seen those presentations at, at the moment, like where is the vision going?
1: Yeah, and I suppose this is I, I suppose it that what you're talking about, kind of how older adults, you know, um, you know, their experience and the outcomes and uh, when they need urgent and emergency care is probably one of the biggest motivators, you know. Um, like you would probably describe the system or the healthcare system at the moment that, you know, it is good enough you know, I know there are kind of individual stories and that you will hear, but overall you would say that, you know, the system is, you know, there are very good things about the system and you'd probably say it is good enough. Um, I've always been interested in how it gets to be, you know, a great healthcare system, you know, and that's, you know, what we should always be aiming for and certainly what a great health system should look like for older adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really where the, Where the start of that kind of vision started about urgent and emergency care and I think there's been huge investment in older people services in the last few years um, which has really been transformational and it's again you know how we use that real you know and that has really given the infrastructure and the building blocks on which to build a great healthcare system but it's really how you link all of the pieces all together we need to get there so in designing and developing that um, you know, and one of the key things that informed that was the um, experience, you know in the inpatient experience survey um, that we looked at that and looked at older people's perspective in that. And so what I really feel very strongly is that you know, we saw all during COVID that older adults, they really, you know, trust the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. you know, when you see, you see that over and over again, even this winter with the vaccinations. You know, they are the first kind of group of people, you know, to avail of vaccinations, you know, to avail of all the advice. You know, when people say stay in, they stay in, stay out, stay out. Um, And so I do think we have a duty, you know, to people who really, that group of people who really trust the healthcare system. So even though they trust it, and they will always very talk highly of the individual care that they receive, you know, their experience remains poor. So their experience in emergency departments is poor their experience accessing the care, waiting for care, you know, in the hospital, waiting for treatments to happen. And then when they want to go home, kind of waiting for services to get them home and not having access to services that will help them to recover properly. So I think that was really kind of the motivating behind that but trying to link it all up together.
0: So, and I suppose I appreciate you, Merlick, we're talking about big system, macro level of health systems, but what does that look like in your vision like say what practically will be different in the next year three years five years is it resources is it more community rehab is it more bedded units like what 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 are the elements of that
1: well i think the the key t- things too is Edel are one um i think we need to identify kind of what the you know really acknowledge and clearly articulate you know what the the problem in the health service currently is at the moment, you know, and I hate using the word problem, um, but oftentimes in any report that you read or in any strategy report or plan, they all it, the kind of aging kind of demographic is always referenced, you know, and this is a plan then to meet that aging demographic, and I actually think that that is the wrong, I think that's the wrong place to start, to be honest. Um, so the fact that we've got um, such advances in ageing and in our demographics really is is absolutely a success mm-hmm. for the healthcare system. And I think the actual problem is, is that the system, as it's currently designed, isn't designed to meet the needs of older adults. Mm-hmm. And that is the problem that needs to be addressed as opposed to kind of creating, having a plan that meets an ageing demographic. And so I suppose that is kind of where the starting point really is: is that how would you, if you had a healthcare system, how would you design it or redesign it? And and it's not even a redesign; it's kind of a reset. How would you reset the healthcare system so that every older adult who accesses it will get a high standard, evidence-based care, kind of from home to home? And so on. That when you get into the detail of what that would look like, what I would like to imagine is that every older adult who needs urgent care. Mm-hmm. Well, at the first point, you know, can that care be delivered appropriately and safely, you know, in the house and in the community in which they live? And then it's about all the integration of all the services and all the investment that has gone into that. So through the primary care and the community health networks and um, through the National Ambulance Service, through the community specialist teams, either for older people and chronic disease, and also another, all other services that we interact with. For example, mental health, palliative care, um, mm. dementia services. And again, even wider again, you know, all those kind of um, non-government organizations and the local authority and all those kind of different dimensions, you know, that kind of build up kind of like a network around in older adults. So, first of all, you know, how you link up all of those. And then secondly, if you do need to come into hospital, you know, that if you attend an emergency department, that when you attend that you will be screened to. Identify whether you're an adult at risk and not of bad things happening to you. And that would happen the moment you come into the hospital. And if you are identified at risk that there's an immediate response from you know, a specialist team, either a specialist emergency team or a specialist gerontology team mm-hmm. with the aim to you know, treat you in the ED and go home or to assess you and identify that you would need admission for specialist care in a hospital. And then anybody then, and what I would really like to see is that any older adult who needs specialist gerontology care, you know, in a hospital should be admitted under that service. Mm. So oftentimes you see older adults, they're kind of mm. under many different specialities all around the hospital and care isn't, there isn't any single point of contact, any care coordination, any access to comprehensive geriatric assessment. So everybody who needs to be admitted, who needs to be under specialist gerontology care should be Mm-hmm. And then when their acute treatment is complete, and I suppose this is important, you know, because I do think hospitals are just part of a continuum of services. You know, everything seems to be hospital-centric and focused on hospitals for all the reasons of high cost or whatever. But when your treat- acute treatment is complete, that like you be discharged from the acute hospital, but onto a pathway that is a better and a safer pathway for you. So ideally home with all the supports that we talked about, you know, in the community, two to rehabilitation only, or three to long-term care, but it should be that less than 3% of older adults should be discharged long-term care from an acute hospital. And I would really advocate strongly that if you are needing kind of additional home supports or if you're needing kind of long-term care for the first time, that you should have access to rehabilitation before those decisions about what the best outcome for you is at the end of the day, because for some, long-term care will be the best option for people and it really is to go through that process and that is really that end-to-end pathway so what I would see is that as older adults come through the system that at every point of care and at every kind of transition of care that it's adding value you know and based upon what they want and they need and I suppose that's the critical part because there's a lot of pathways in the system that don't do that there's a, a huge amount that do really is about joining up the good ones together and really finding, you know, different ways of, you know, making it better for older people when they're leaving hospital.
0: Yeah. And I suppose in that whole piece of you're only as good as the next step. So if you have your if you need to leave ED, there has to be another receiving service or if you're leaving an acute hospital, you can't do that if you're in a county without X service or Y service. And I know when we had, um, when Dr. Adam Gordon was on, even from an NHS perspective, it was a lot around rehab. You can't understate how critical it is, but it doesn't get the coverage of, say, trolley counts and other things. But it truly, if you had access to high quality inpatient and domiciliary rehab, you would move things along a lot of directions. I think that's actually fundamental and key, but I think that is changing. Um, yeah.
1: I think there's been many stakeholders involved in rehabilitation and advocating for it, you know, across a lot of different disciplines and specialities. And I think sometimes, um, you know, we are guilty of overcomplicating what is a relatively kind of, um, not a simple intervention, but a relatively simple pathway and a process. And so what happens in the end is that people are competing with each other for the same value in the system or the same resources. So I think kind of like in my um, in my role as Ncagl, what we have done is actually brought together all the stakeholders together and the disciplines involved in rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. And we first looked at two kind of key bits of information that I think will inform what you're talking about, Idel. So one is we looked at all the post-acute services around the country and really for the first time to quantify what is or isn't there. Mm-hmm. And... One of the overriding kind of key findings from that is that people, by and large, didn't understand what rehabilitation is, or what it does, or what it means. And I think there actually is a piece of work in unifying and collaborating in behind that. And then two, there's a clear deficit in inpatient. We just looked at inpatient capacity. There is a clear deficit, you know, um, in inpatient capacity across the specialities again and across the system. But again, it's really important, and I suppose that's, you know, another part that we'll probably talk about later—the the importance of data and information. So that's the first time that we've actually known that. And then, two, there's a the second study undergoing, kind of through the trauma office, um, whom I also work with, where they did surveys in, um, I think about ten hospitals around the country, where they surveyed all the inpatients to see: did the patient need to stay in hospital? Did they need inpatient rehabilitation, or could they? be discharged from the hospital to either rehabilitation at home mm-hmm. or to um, inpatient rehabilitation. And the results are just, are the kind of, um, those reports have just been put together now and it is just, you know, it's uh, it's one of, again, one of those moments where you go, it is so obvious that it was in front of us that, you know, it is rehabilitation that is needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those two pieces of information will really help us to advocate and certainly in the, you know, in the system at the moment, in the HSE and in the department, there is a focus on older adults like there's never been before. And um, there's an urgent and emergency care plan that will be published and a national service plan that will seem to be published. And in it, you know, older adult care is a priority. And in it, you know, there's clearly, you know, articulation, the, um, the importance and the relevance of rehabilitation and about organising services to deliver rehabilitation. So I think that will be more and more and more, but I think it's very important, you know, as a community in gerontology and outside with all the people that we work with, you know, that we do need to be able to clearly articulate to anyone, you know, what rehabilitation is Mm -hmm. and to simplify the messages that we we send out because we do complicate things and then it becomes harder, you know, to actually put into place pathways when we're asking for many different factors. But in actual fact, rehabilitation is the same for everyone. You know, it's somebody has a functional deficit for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. and you can give interventions to modify or reverse that. And, you know, by and large, no matter how complex it is or on what scale of the complexity scale you're on, Mm -hmm. that basic premise is there. And I think it's important to get that message across.
0: I suppose as we were talking there about demand and older adults and i suppose just increasingly being able to meet that demand and if respecting specialties but at the same time older adults are on every ward every specialty every setting uh when dr Colm henry was on the podcast he made that comment that you know they're the purpose not the problem and that we can't say every over 65 is just for a geriatrician or a geriatric. Consultant. I suppose how do you see the balance between obviously specialists like geriatricians offer and geriatric wards offer a specialty, but how do we balance that with meeting demand and somehow gauging that majority of specialties and services will be treating these people? So I suppose how do we move through that? I suppose, and that
1: is the that is the biggest challenge, you know, for our healthcare system. Um so when um, you know when looking at this, so I suppose every day, kind of no matter what job you do in the healthcare service, mm-hmm. you know every day you will be looking after in some domain of care after an older adult. Mm-hmm. There are very few exceptions, maybe neonates and <laughs> pediatrics. But even in pediatrics, my colleagues would talk about a lot of the carers for children are mm-hmm. older adults, and the, they're part of the unit of care now in pediatrics. So that will happen to every person who works in the healthcare system. There is nobody that will not be looking after an older adult every day. So I do think there is a certain level of awareness and knowledge that people need to have, you know, when they're caring for an older adult. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, that is a simplified kind of process, but is a process that everybody can understand and I suppose importantly that everybody can understand and communicate when people are going through the, those transitions of care that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And that is why one of the overriding kind of parts of the vision, kind of for kind of healthcare in Ireland and the future of healthcare for everyone in Ireland, really is about implementing a framework that would support that everybody would know what to do when caring for an older adult. And the framework is the and um, the four M's framework which was developed by the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And that is really, and I suppose it's interesting, the kind of story and the development of that, in that they took, you know, they examined all the models of care that were evidence-based for older adults. And a group of experts kind of extracted what are the critical elements in all those models of care. One, improve outcomes for older adults, and two, then reduce the variation and harm. And they extracted four core elements so the four are one that you really shift the, the healthcare care system, not to focus on an illness or, or an injury, which it does at the moment, but to focus on what matters to the older adult. What do they need? What do they want? You know, and how you're going to meet that. And I think that's a broad shift. And then the other three interventions are one around medications with the harm that we all know about from, polypharmacy and about de-prescribing and about appropriate prescribing as well. Three then around mental health, you you know, which looks at the areas of dementia, delirium, depression, but also kind of elements like loneliness kind of within the whole kind of spectrum of your mental health. And then four then is mobility. The fourth end is mobility. And that really is a kind of a term really for the broad thing about what you need to help, you know, to live the life, the way that you, want and need to lead lead it as we've ascertained from what matters to you and you kind of think if you were able so that would apply to every older adult in the healthcare system Mm -hmm. so every time they come in contact with someone in the healthcare system and everybody can take those four elements and apply them you know at some level what they do and I suppose the real elegance of it is one in its simplicity but two also it can be applied to every older adult regardless of what illness or injury you have you can apply it in any setting so in hospitals in nursing homes in primary care and also it can apply to any can be applied you know across it transcends the disciplines so anybody who's working in healthcare can use those four Ms. and i think that has to be that is going to be the key kind of kind of intervention you know if we're going to go from a system that is not designed to be age-friendly to a system that will be age-friendly And in all the systems that have implemented this, for example, the VA system in the states, which is closely aligned to us and that it's also a publicly funded system. So they have applied this, you know, throughout, but also systems in North America, especially now apply the 4Ms to all the populations that come in and access their services. You know, not, not just older adults, but a system that uses the 4M framework will also benefit, you know, anyone who's vulnerable or marginalized for whatever reason. So, for example, you can readily see how it could be used for someone with a disability, somebody with mental illness. That is, it is the framework that will ultimately kind of reset the system so that we can give the best standard of care to older adults. You know, it has been proven to give better standards of care to older adults to reduce variation and harm. Mm-hmm. It also, has been shown to be cost effective where it has applied so it's a benefit to older adults to the staff working in the system because they now have a knowledge and awareness of you know what to do which some people find challenging and then it also has benefit to the system in terms of you know giving value to the system as well.
0: Yeah and has it been do you know any examples of it being used in Ireland to date or have you
1: seen action? Um, uh, Kurt and James one of my colleagues introduced it in the emergency department here And in uh, St. Thomas Hospital in the rehabilitation unit, and also there's other examples as well. I know at the moment that the National Ambulance Service um, want to adopt it as a framework because over half of their emergency conveyances are now older adults, Mm. and certainly it would be one of the core. It will be the core framework to underline the urgent and emergency care pathway. We're also and linking with uh, community health networks and using it as a framework within the community health networks, you know, for primary care. So again, it's about really, you know, bringing it and bringing a community, you know, and that's the whole premise behind it, bringing a whole community in behind this framework, you know? Yeah. So when we talk about that, so that's what I think the framework that is needed, you know, you need a unifying, simplified, but effective framework, you know, that could be applied in any setting. And I suppose where I see specialist gerontology services coming in is to take that all that information from the 4Ms. Mm-hmm. You know, and our specialty area really is in the management of multi-complexity, and sometimes that's called the 5th M, and there are certainly models kind of called the 5Ms. Mm. But I think the first 4Ms is what everybody, every healthcare worker in the system needs to be aware and have a knowledge of, and every other should should get. And then with that information from that is where the specialist gerontology services come in. So You're going to manage all that, you know, multi-complexity. And mm-hmm. that's really kind of, I think, what the speciality of gerontology does. Yeah.
0: And, and I suppose that would serve to at least get some level of standardization and equity across all services. Um. So uh, then looking at kind of, gerontology services themselves or say eds or ICPOPs or um just comparable groups like is there a move towards or maybe it's already in place like standardized screening or standardized like when we talk about demand in eds it's often age over 75 volume but as far as i'm aware we can't consistently say frailty level or like is there a move towards even standardizing practice Within gerontology a bit between comparable settings, or is that I think um I suppose I don't like the word standardized, so that' standardized, but like say no, no no, yeah, but
1: I think it's like to get consistency across yeah. it, you know I think um uh, I suppose I think that's where like sometimes you know in kind of models of care and plans, you can be over prescriptive in yeah. terms of you know use. X screening tool to screen in the ED for frailty or delirium or whatever. And I often think that really underestimates the kind of the expertise and skills and knowledge that people have, you know, on the ground in all those clinical areas. So um, I think it's to have kind of, you know, broad kind of principles, really, and values, you know, of what should happen. mm mm-hmm with an organizing framework, a clinical framework like the four M's, Mm -hmm. but for each area to say, okay, we are going to implement this framework, but we are going to attend to mobility by doing X, Y, and Z, you know? And I think that's really, really important. You know, I used to be the first kind of person with my hand up going, tell me what screening tool to use when I used to be attending conferences, you know, but more and more as I go on, I think it's actually it's so important that within a framework to allow the local, you know, kind of local expertise to organize the care, because then you will own the care,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and having something imposed on something that you haven't used before or are not familiar with generally won't be sustainable in the long term. Yeah. You just need to give that framework and then. For the local experts, and there we have experts in every single, you know, care setting all over the country in gerontology. Um, and for those people to take that and to say, right, so this is what we can use here. I'm very familiar with this. And to allow that to happen. But yeah. as long as you're still kind of like delivering on kind of the person's mental health, you know. Mm-hmm. But how you do thats that isn't, um, doesn't need to be prescribed, I don't think
0: no so you're right so like agreeing like a principle and value with a system but obviously local because it will also depend on the skill mix and the resources in each setting and like it, it can't be prescribed really Import. yeah
1: absolutely you know and it is that this could be applied to i often think of the person in the ed um so the admin support in the ed so if somebody came in to, you know when an older adult comes into them could they use the 4ms in their work you know absolutely you know so they could ask. Um, you know, is there anything that I need to know about you today that's going to help you? You know, do yeah. you have a list of your medications with you? Do you mm-hmm. need help to get around the department? Do you need to have someone with you, you know, to get the information that we're going to give you today? So, even so, that's you've just implemented the forums in the reception in an ED department if you'd apply that.
0: Because we're kind of talking about age friendly health systems. Um, But obviously, like the AGS, it's kind of gerontology. It's wider society and how we treat people, older adults. Um, How do you feel in Ireland, say, culturally or publicly or the media? How do you think we're doing with how we depict or speak about or speak to or engage with older adults? Um, I think
1: it's changing, but I think we probably still you know, fundamentally do discriminate against older adults and especially older adults with frailty. Mm. Um and I don't know, are we in the gerontology community just more sensitive to that? So anytime we see something um <laughs> reference that our, our you know head start spinning. Um but I do think that uh I think that is fundamental, you know, um one you know it's the WHO decade of aging and one of the core kind of objectives in that is to um you know root out ageism, you know. And it's still a substantial amount of work has been done. There's been huge progress, but it still is, you know, it, it still is something that is very prevalent. And I think I suppose when you get back to the earlier why you became a geriatrician or why you got involved in this, and I suppose then it's probably at its core, you know, so um people when they work in gerontology you know, in addition to the joy of the clinical work and the complexity of it, I suppose there is that advocacy role. Um, mm-hmm. I think that only kind of only certain kind of um, kind of people and their values kind of gravitate to, and that is certainly kind of a part of it. So I do think that there, and that's a big role that the IGS will play. But I think that's a role that everybody working in healthcare needs to play. Everybody in the wider kind of ecosystem, age-friendly ecosystem. And importantly, you know, um, older adults themselves, and you can see that more and more, you know, through the various campaigns kind of being run, um, because there will be nothing more powerful than an older adult calling for an end to that discrimination, you know, um, over and above any of us who work in healthcare. And you can certainly see that um, voice coming through, you know, more and more in various different kind of form, fora around the place. And I suppose it is the diversity in that and coming at it from many different angles and not just from a healthcare lens yeah. that I think is probably going to be the most powerful.
0: Yeah, i actually seen a clip, I don't know if it was from this week from primetime of an older woman advocating for a commissioner for older people like they have in Northern Ireland or that our current minister is split across a couple of demanding areas as well as old, older people. And I suppose it is more powerful when it is someone who is is older and living through that experience to hear them advocating as well. Um, just- no, absolutely. Because I don't think at
1: any level that you can understand it, you know, even with um, uh, my own mother who's very fit and well, you know, she talked recently about, um, you know, the loneliness of her friends, you know, around her getting sick. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, there's nothing there's nothing that's more needed or more wanted than that peer-to-peer support. And again, you know it yourself, you know, the person that you will most talk to is the person that's most like you. Yeah. Um, And it's really about, and I think there's, I do think that that is developing, you know, and all the, and for an older adults themselves believe that, believe more and more now they have more confidence that they can contribute to that, you know, and
0: -hmm. you're
1: certainly seeing that. And it's up to us, I think, to support that, you know, and everything that we do.
0: I know we've kind of touched on it there because we were kind of touching on how to make things a bit more accessible outside of geriatrics, but just from a uh, educational priorities for, I suppose, for workforce planning for even like say a physio coming out this year out of college will have a different health system than say I did. a a couple of years ago so like how do you feel we should be going from an educational perspective
1: I think it's really important to start uh teaching you know the undergraduates you know like before people kind of qualify um and you know in kind of undergraduate training and in the curriculum you know to have you know a curriculum you know about kind of older adults and their care needs and again focused really kind of building up the competencies and skills you need really around that 4MS framework again, you know, to use that almost as a framework for an education or curriculum to be developed. And also then to get kind of the clinical exposure, you know, during your undergraduate and postgraduate career, um, uh, again, I think is critical in moving forward. And, you know, things are improving now. Um, you know, people used to, you know, in every aspect, you know, used to, it was very much unidisciplinary. And I think kind of a key will be how we're all going to, all the disciplines are going to work together to deliver on better care. And that's, you know, and to be honest, it's, it's harder than you think intuitively. And even as a geriatrician, I thought intuitively, this would be relatively easy for everyone to come together and work in these kind of teams. Yeah. But it's, you know, we've learned that it's been harder than we thought because, There is about maintaining your kind of professional skills and competencies and also kind of like your your own values and your alignment with your profession Mm -hmm. and and working in a multidisciplinary way. And I think that's when the importance of knowing kind of what matters to the older adult becomes so important because it's actually, you know, the professional boundaries are important for people for their professionalism. But I think then it's about, you know, how people work together to deliver on what this person kind of wants and needs. So I think it kind of it, it helps to elevate the conversation and also helps, you know, a lot of the difficult conversations that can happen. And I think that's just, um, but it is, it's hard and we need to focus on interdisciplinary working and how people work together. And I know there's an awful lot of work being done with the universities around that. and. A lot of people kind of leading on that, you know, around the country. And that's going to be really important. And it's something that does need to be thought because it doesn't, it doesn't happen kind of naturally.
0: And as was, and that brings on to kind of workforce and obviously teams are going more and more interdisciplinary. You definitely see it like clinical specialist grades Mm -hmm. and therapists, AMPs, people are working dynamically. Mm -hmm. So do you think that's a solution and something that needs to be driven like say Alzheimer's, HSCP, like advanced practice, things like that that would, that would let you go to the end of your scope that they have in NHS. Do you think that's something that's important to meet this demand?
1: And I think what we need to have is the culture that we need to have is that everybody is operating at the top of their license. Yeah. You know, of their skills and competencies in that interdisciplinary way. And... um again, I think that will be instrumental then in breaking down the, you know, the silos and the practices or the segregated practices that you see, Um, uh, you know, and because when you talk to individuals, you know, like oftentimes their frustrations are because they aren't able to do what they know they can do, what they're trained to do, what they have the expertise to do because of some of bureaucracy or rule and regulation you know that you have to refer them to get to this or you know just as an example so it really is and I think then the frustration then doesn't help then people in interdisciplinary working but I think if you had these pathways developed for people really to kind of to operate at the top of their clinical license would just be really helpful you know I suppose to give people back and I think this is probably one of the things that's very important kind of to me as well that um you know, people are happy kind of working, you know, because if you're not happy working, generally the patients that you care for aren't going to be happy either. So if you have, um, I read a book that says Patients Come Second, which probably isn't the most, kind of the one you wouldn't be holding up, kind of like when sitting in a public room. But I think, you know, the, the premise behind it is that if you have a workforce, you know, that are getting the most out of their work, giving the most to their work, that actual the patient outcomes and the patient care will actually look after itself kind of at that point. So that was kind of that kind of argument or debate behind it. So I do think that's really, really important to have a culture and an infrastructure where staff are.
0: Yeah, this you know, so, was in, incentivized people to stay in the system and to stay engaged and to stay in the public sector in different roles. So something- yeah, you can see kind of like, you know,
1: you can just, it's a personal fulfillment, you know, as well as professionally, you know, you can, you know, you, people want to progress. People generally have an insatiable appetite for learning. You know, people who go into healthcare generally, or not generally, but it would be hard to kind of even identify one person who hasn't gone into it to improve, mm. you know, either care or the system, you know, so anything that you can do to advance that, you um, yeah. You know, again, should just, but again, a lot of work has been achieved on that. And if there's a new, you know, a has gone into the department now, you know, so there's, even though sometimes people kind of say there's nothing happening and things are, you know, things, there's been huge change has happened, you know, and maybe not at the pace that everyone would like, but certainly moving forwards.
0: I have questions here, like around things like the biggest change you've seen in your career. I think it's been the
1: expansion of uh, the gerontology speciality. When I say gerontology, I mean kind of everybody working in it. I don't think any of us would have foreseen the expansion that has happened in the last few years. You know, and there's yeah. a lot of people that should be, you know, kind of accredited with that. You know, um, so our CCO, uh, Michael Connor, Dermot O'Shea um, and Siobhan Canelli all played instrumental roles in that in the HSE. And. Bringing that about PJ Harness, who was um, a huge um, catalyst in developing all that, mm-hmm. um, and so and you know, like I don't think we ever would have seen that. And certainly, I suppose what I am seeing now is really um, a focus on older adults and optimizing their care that I wouldn't have seen before. You know, mm-hmm. I think there generally is. Um, insight and knowledge that um, uh, older adults you know need and expect a high standard of care and it's up to the system to deliver on it and um, so certainly that is kind of changing as well I would see that um, and I always think of it is that you know that i come in at time when it's probably you know that all the heavy lifting has been done but I think if you can say that each time you know for each successive kind of kind of generation of people who go through that, you know, what you're doing is, you know, every what everybody in their work every day is really doing the heavy lifting and creating that shift all the time. Mm-hmm. That's only when you step back and even maybe even doing podcasts like this to reflect that you realize all the heavy lifting that has been done. And I suppose then it's your role to come in just to kind of lift it kind of onto the next level again. But there's a structure there, that, there now that is... You know if there's such an infrastructure there now with all the investment that has gone on and the focus on older adults that if we can't get it right for older adults kind of within this time space you know it um i can't you know it it would be hard to foresee how we couldn't get it right with everything all the work that has been done all the infrastructure that is there you know for us to actually just get it right
0: yeah, and it's it's diffuse. Like we were only talking recently about a time where, say, there would have been one clinical specialist physio in older adults I could think of in the country, and now there's so many posts, so many teams, different settings, even just across disciplines. There obviously is funding and energy towards the specialty and AMP posts and everything else. You can see it as a system, even in the last ten years. I think
1: no, it's like it, and it. it... You know, it's something that probably nobody could conceive, you know. And I do think there is, you know, with that, there's a responsibility of us to make sure that we can kind of deliver kind of what is expected with that investment as well, you know. So so that's, you know, kind of what is feasible and how we're going to give value back then, you know. So with all the investment that it really, you know, we should be able to deliver, kind of get it, you know, you know, get it better again for older people with what we have. And certainly you can see that happening all around the country. But there is a responsibility with all that investment to, you to
0: know, look. to get it to the next level again. Yeah, and I had asked around, I actually asked a couple of SBRs about questions for you, and a few of them came back with, ask her what would be her advice. So if you were like a, a young SBR in geriatrics, what would be your wisdom that you'd impart on them from your perspective?
1: What it would be to, um, oh, really to enjoy it,
0: you know to the footless fancy free phase (laughs) yeah there will be you know there will
1: always be pain and there will always be problems you know but um overall really kind of you couldn't ask to work with nicer colleagues across all the disciplines you know Mm -hmm. you will never work with people with such kind of core values to do the right thing um, and then the join itself and the people that you work with, and the older adults that you work with every day. I mean, there's such learning and wisdom that just enhances your life every day. I still think I'm like, I need, you know, at this point in my career, I think now there's so much now that I have now yet to learn. Whereas maybe when I was in SPR, I actually thought maybe I knew it all. But as I guess, kind of like older and older, I realize there's so much more that I need to know. So it's ultimately it's to really embrace all of that you know the people you care for and um, the people you work with and
0: to really really enjoy it you know
1: mm-hmm.
0: and now we've kind of done this in pieces across our discussion but if you're even in a couple of sentences say your dream state health system so older person in their 80s becomes acutely unwell how would that flow and do you think you're going to see it within your career or before you become maybe in the over 70s group which is i would say a long time away um yeah obviously very far away you know? <laughs> I mean, you've um, loads of time to achieve it um so what
1: I would you know what I would really simply like to see is that for every older adult when they need care that they get the right care mm-hmm. and It's the right care really as defined what an age-friendly system would look like. Mm -hmm. And then when they don't need care and when they're living at home in their communities for which they will spend the most part of their lives um, is that they would live in age-friendly communities that kind of value older adults, Mm -hmm. um, that they make continue to make huge contributions to um, and that we really are living in a state where you know older adults really are the the elders and you know respected and, and people in our society
0: yeah i think that's a perfect note to end on so just want to say on be well on behalf of yourself and myself and the igs thank you for making the time to do the podcast uh it's great to actually sit down i think people find it really valuable to hear the discussion so just thank you very much for joining us